Welcome to the Virginia Economic Review podcast. Welcome to the Virginia Economic Review podcast. This is Stephen Moray, President and CEO of the Virginia Economic Development Partnership, or VDP. Today, I'm delighted to have the opportunity to speak with Steve Morgan, who is the founder of Cybersecurity Ventures and editor-in-chief of Cybercrime Magazine. Steve, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Steve, for the for the benefit of our readers and, and listeners as well, can you tell us a bit about Cybersecurity Ventures, why you started the company, and what type of work the company's involved in today? So I started up the company in 2015 in direct response to a lack of cybersecurity research data and figures that I had been after. At the time, I was writing for the media. I've been covering the industry for a while and started out by compiling lists of companies nationally, broke that down regionally. From there, started to conduct cybercrime research, having to do mainly with the damage costs associated with cybercrime. And in 2018, after finding there was a big appetite for that information, we launched Cybercrime Magazine, our own media, which originally was intended to serve up that data. We had a growing body of reports we had published, and I guess you could say accidentally, it turned into a mainstream media property. So it's a lot different than what we intended. And so that serves the world. We cover cybercrime and cybersecurity in the U.S. and internationally, and now in in 2021, we are launching the first and only 7x24x365 internet radio station for cybercrime and cybersecurity. And you could tune in at cybercrime.radio. You worked at McAfee in the mid-90s, obviously one of the most well-known names in tech. But you worked in the mid-90s when the internet you know, was really becoming more widespread among the general population. And cybersecurity was kind of in its infancy, starting to become a concern of the general public instead of just a relatively small group of users. What cybersecurity issues did you see back then? How has that changed and what sort of persists today? It was very different back then. You know, the biggest threat were uh, computer viruses that were infecting PCs. And frankly, most companies didn't take it very seriously until the proliferation of the internet interconnected them with so many other organizations. The internet became much like the airplane was to the human virus. That was the carrier. Companies started to infect each other and it was a very big deal. And that almost was the start of our industry. You could argue that it started when there were products to protect PCs, which had been around for a long time. But that was that was a tipping point. And McAfee and other companies were organized around that. I think you joined McAfee right after, I believe, John McAfee, the company founder, left. And by the way, John McAfee, I believe, is a, actually a graduate of Roanoke College in Virginia. Curious, obviously, while John McAfee, of course, he unfortunately passed away recently and actually hasn't been associated with the company in any meaningful way for decades, but still a, sort of one of the giant names in technology. Did you ever get a chance to know him perhaps after you left McAfee? And, and if so, what, what could you sort of share about what he was like? You know, what was John McAfee like as the man? So I joined McAfee not long after John left. The company was still early on. We had about 100 employees when I joined the company. Hadn't done much in the way of acquisitions at that point. It was still, you know, McAfee, the organic brand. They were the second fastest growing company behind Netscape at the time. It was a great story. It was a lot of fun to be there. When I was there over a three and a half year period, we grew from 100 employees to about 3,500 employees and from $90 million to at the time, I think it was about a half a billion dollars 
dollars in revenue. It was a lot of fun. Never met John then. However, I did meet John through my media coverage. At the time, I was writing for Forbes on cybersecurity. And after covering John for a while, I wound up with a contract to write his life story his biography. And John and I spent quite a bit of time with each other, both in person and over a number of months after that via email and phone calls. And I spoke to dozens of people, perhaps over a hundred, going back to his early childhood up through, you know, his time in Belize for anyone who's familiar with that. So learned a lot about John. He was the quintessential Silicon Valley entrepreneur on the one hand. And then unfortunately, he suffered from a lot of mental health issues, in my opinion. And he had a very colored life and was very involved with things ranging from drugs to other, you know, questionable behavior. And, you know, ultimately he died in a prison in Spain. He found out he was going to be extradited. The IRS was after him for not filing a tax return. I don't remember how many years. I want to say maybe 10. So John had a very colorful life and that was reflected in the time that I spent with him. A cyber genius, brilliant businessman, and then someone who just was involved with a lot of questionable activity that took his life in a very strange direction and, and ultimately a, a very dark place. Sorry to hear that. Is, is the book out? Is it available? No, uh, I had the contract to write the book. I compiled a lot of material, but I opted out. I was concerned about the brand association with John. I didn't want to be inextricably linked to John McAfee, the name. And I also am running a company that's growing very, very quickly and demands my attention. Just didn't have the time for the book project. So the more sensible thing to do, and I think the better way for us to tell the story, was to leverage our media through a series of articles and podcasts and video, which is what we're doing now. Your organization has estimated that cybercrime damages will cost the world $6 trillion annually by 2025. How does that underscore the importance of cybersecurity to businesses moving forward? Or is this something we're eventually going to get our arms around, or is it something that's going to be with us permanently? You know, a lot of people ask me about that figure. We originally published that at the end of 2017. And when you're talking about such a big number, a number that equates to what would be the world's third largest country, if you measured, you know, right, GDP, right. it's certainly not to the penny. It's not to the dollar. If you had to round it off, it might be by a few billion dollars, although I do believe it's the most accurate estimation we have. Are companies taking it seriously? It's funny, so many people would ask me in 2017, where did you get that figure? And it was vetted, we spoke to a lot of media, but people are wondering, could cybercrime really be causing that much damage? Now, a lot of those same people say, Steve, that's a vast underestimation, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and a lot of those people are chief information security officers at Fortune 500 companies. So unfortunately, there's been a wake-up call. And that wake-up call has taken five or six years and thousands of cyber attacks and data breaches. And the world has woken up to the reality that just about every company in the world, whether they're small, mid-sized or large enterprises, have been hacked. They may know about it. They may not know about it. The threat is real. And looking forward, we believe that number is going to grow at minimum 15% per year up through 2030. We see that number growing to over $10 trillion annually. You, you've helped sound the alarm on the cybersecurity skills gap, among other things. From, from your vantage point, what skills do you see are the most important for the cybersecurity workforce of the future? 
You know, I'm glad that you asked that question because there's a misunderstanding about the opportunity in cybersecurity, and it is so important for our country and for the world to reach out to young people. I think it starts as early as middle school, or some people may argue that it should start as early as kindergarten, you know, K through six. We must engage young people. We have to get them at the high school level. They have to be thinking about cyber before they enter college. I'm not someone who thinks, you know, cyber is for every Everybody. And I'm certainly not here to argue that it's a better career opportunity than so many other options that are available to young people. But I am here to argue that it should be on the radar screen, and it's not. It should be a choice. If a young man or woman is thinking about becoming a police officer or thinking about law enforcement, then they should be thinking about becoming a cyber fighter. That should be available to them. Their parents should know about it, educators should know about it, and it should be a choice. Unfortunately, I don't think it is. And I say that from experience. I've been out talking to schools and I've had a chance to speak with a lot of young people and I don't feel that enough of them are being engaged early enough. In Virginia, we're very familiar with this because we're one of the biggest sources of cybersecurity talent in the world. Are there particular types of skills that are most relevant or in greatest demand? You know, the problem we have is the obvious skills the kids probably know about, even if it's just abstractly. You know, you talk about engineering, software engineering, cyber engineering. Those are the hard skills that have to do with computer science. And I think that a lot of people only think about that. So yes, clearly we do need kids coming into the workforce with those skill sets. But if someone is thinking about or has an affinity for cars, there's a great opportunity in the automotive space for people to get involved with cybersecurity. There are opportunities with forensics, you know, investigations. You don't necessarily need coding skills for that. There are so many positions in cyber where you don't have to become a cryptographer and, you know, be a mathematics major or computer science major. And I think that's what we really need to get the word out around because there is just such a vast number of positions. With that in mind, what do you think colleges, universities, and other public entities, state governments and others can do to help close the gap between the available jobs in the cybersecurity space and then really the talent available to fill them? I think we're moving in the right direction. We did a study, it was back in 2016, I want to say. It might have been actually 2015. But at the time, I think we had, I forget how many dozens of programs, but it was in the dozens. It, it wasn't a very large number of master's degree programs in cyber. And now you can't count the number of programs. We're seeing a vast number of BA programs. We're seeing a vast number of programs in the community college system, as well as vocational schools. So we've seen huge growth around cybersecurity courseware across the board. And that's a really, really good thing. So there's been a lot of investment and I definitely think we're moving in the right direction. Are there any leading examples you've seen around the country, around the world in talent development for cybersecurity professionals that you think we ought to be paying attention to here in Virginia? I think we need to think outside of the box. I recently interviewed Craig Froelich. He's the chief information security officer at the Bank of America, one of the largest corporations in our country, the largest bank in our country. He has been an advocate for reaching out to the neurodiverse community. And they're just one example. There's many other examples, uh, but Craig has done a great job of engaging them, hiring them, getting the word out to his peers and starting a movement around our industry looking to that community of people who otherwise have been ignored 
and may not have been proactive looking for positions themselves. How do you think we can make cybersecurity education as well as just knowledge of these different sort of growing and somewhat you know, new and novel career paths in this industry accessible for more students in the United States and, and in Virginia? I don't know if accessibility is as important as, you know, the kids just thinking about it. You know, the one point I would want to hammer home over and over and over again is we have to get the word out to parents. Most kids up through 17, 18 years old of age, they trust their parents. They may not always get along with their parents and they may not like, you know, what their parents have to say, but they trust their parents. They speak to their parents about what school they're going to go to. And of course, you know, they're could be some financial support connected to that. But either way, they're speaking to their parents. They're speaking to their parents about what they're going to major in. Most parents don't fully understand cybersecurity. If you ask them, what do salaries look like for doctors, for heart surgeons, for nurses, for architects, they could probably answer that or they'd be inclined to find that information very easily. If you ask them those same questions about cybersecurity, I don't think most parents could answer the question. And I think they'd have a blank stare if their kid brought it up to them, and they certainly are not encouraging their kids to think about cybersecurity. I know you have a significant presence both on the West Coast and on the East Coast. What's your view on how Virginia fits into the overall cybersecurity ecosystem? If you look at the DC Beltway, if you look at just that part of our country, we have three and a half times the number of cyber engineers than the rest of the country combined. And I want to emphasize combined. So not three and a half times more than other, any other part of the country, three and a half times more than the entire country combined. Now, the reason that people may not think of Virginia when they think of a comparison to Silicon Valley is because the area just doesn't have the same number of commercialized cybersecurity companies. So that would mean, you know, a company who develops and sells a quote product. But there's a tremendous number of people in the Virginia area for those companies. And then there is a tremendous number of companies involved with providing professional services. So they may not get the same media attention. Maybe they're not bringing a product to market that's as easy to write about and talk about. But the population of people fighting cybercrime in Virginia is enormous. But I think people need to know, hey, this is a great place. It's a great place to relocate a business. It's a great place to start up a business. It's got a great quality of life. It has phenomenal universities in the area. The proximity to the DC area and other neighboring areas that tie into the opportunity in cyber, it is definitely one of the top places in our country. We covered a lot of ground here, but are there any new cybersecurity developments that you find particularly intriguing that we might want to be keeping our eyes on in Virginia? One of the biggest threats we see globally would be mobile collaboration chat tools. You know, this is what we really need to be worried about right now. You have a tremendous population of people who are still coming online and they're using apps that haven't been used previously, and we really, really need to pay attention to it. We're looking at about 75% of the world's population being online right now, and that's going to grow to about 90%, or 7.5 billion people being online by 2030. That's an enormous number. And a lot of those people who come online don't own computers, don't own laptops, they use their phone. 
and they're using a lot of tools that are new to many of us. And if they're not new to us, we're definitely using them in new ways or new levels of importance. So things like, you know, LinkedIn and Slack or a lot of mobile tools that young people might be using. It's a challenge. It's a big issue. It's something that we really need to pay attention to. Well, we've covered a lot of ground here, Steve. I really appreciate you taking time to join us. I know our listeners and readers are going to be really interested in this. I am curious. I know you covered Virginia a lot. If you've had a chance to visit the Commonwealth, is there any particular part of Virginia that you like the most? I've been in the Herndon area, McLean, Manassas, Arlington. But I mean, of course, who's who's going to leave Virginia Beach out? It's a beautiful <laughs> state. Virginia is for lovers, but it's also for cybersecurity companies. And you have some of the best in the state. You know, I could rattle them right off the top of my head. You've got Expel and GuidePoint in Herndon and IronNet in McLean and RangeForce in Manassas and Telos in Ashburn and ThreatConnect in Arlington. Keep me on and I'll keep going straight down the list. I could name... <laughs> hundreds of companies. So if I'm down there, I definitely want to visit those companies. Congrats on your really interesting career and the chance to be able to have a whole company that's focused on one of the most dynamic and one of the largest industry sectors in Virginia and in the world. Super important today, becoming more important every day. We thank you again for making time to visit with us today, and we look forward to uh, staying in touch in the future. Thank you for having me on. This podcast has been brought to you by the Virginia Economic Development Partnership. Thanks for listening.